turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 is what we'll read and consider. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Before we read and look at it, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we come as your uh, children to be fed. We're a needy children. Uh, we need you every day. And we need you to enlighten our hearts and to teach us things that maybe we've never heard of or to remind us of things that we already know but needed a reminder of. And so as we approach this passage and take a look at it, we ask that you fill each of our hearts with your Holy Spirit that you'd save any of us who don't know you, and that you would uh, edify and sanctify those of us uh, who do believe in Jesus Christ. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So, brothers and sisters of Hope Church and everyone with us here uh, today, uh, as before we uh, walk into verses 18 through 25 and take a look at it, I'd like to remind us each of the context leading up uh, to this, because Christmas is about a lot of things. But one thing that it is in particular is about God saving sinners. And if you uh, flip back in your Bible, if you have it open, would like to, you can notice uh, in verse 3, uh, beginning there, that we've got uh, four ladies uh, who are part of Jesus' ancestry, his genealogy, where Jesus came from. And uh, these four ladies stand out, not simply because they're ladies, although that's, it, it's notable for that. But we've got Tamar in the history of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and Perez uh, was brought into the world by Judas, sleeping with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. A sinful, wretched ancestry that's part of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rahab is in there as well. She was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a foreigner wasn't from Israel, didn't belong in Israel, and the Lord saved her, yoked her to Naomi, and uh, used her to bring about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we've got the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. So Solomon came into this world uh, through uh, David having Bathsheba's husband murdered, and then uh, uh, and before that, uh, sleeping with um, Bathsheba, committing adultery with her. These people are all in the line of our Lord Jesus Christ. And after Matthew kind of unfolds this and sort of slips these people in there, then he talks about this Savior. Now the birth of Jesus Christ begins this way and walks us into especially the naming of Jesus and noticing uh, and even mentioning that he's named Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. Well, who are these sinners? Well, we just read about a lot of them. 
They're, they're all through his genealogy. And, and these aren't the only sinners. These are just notable sinners or outsiders. And so beloved, what Christmas tells us over and over every year is that we are sinful people and we need a savior. And Jesus is indeed that very savior. And something else this ancestry of Jesus tells us is that no one is too sinful or too far gone to be saved. Some people might think, look, I've blown it. I've committed too many sins, or this person over there, they're really wretched. They've lived half their life in prison, etc. They're beyond the pale of salvation. And what this passage tells us is that nobody's outside the pale of God's salvation. Everybody uh, who believes in Jesus will be saved and will receive the gift of eternal life. So I'd like us to notice just four things. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? For whom did he do it? And how can we receive it? And let's begin with who is Jesus? And I'd like to begin with Jesus is God with us. And I'd like to begin with that first word, God. Who is Jesus? He's God. There's a couple hints that Jesus is God, beginning in verse 18 and verse 20 of the passage we read. Here's some of the hints. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So this is no ordinary conception. So there's a hint that clearly there's something different about Jesus' conception. And then verse 20, do not take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And in case any of us had any question about who Jesus really is, in verse 23, we're told, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we're told in this passage that Jesus is himself God. We know from this passage that he's man. He came into this world. His mother was Mary. But what's interesting about Jesus Christ as well is that he's God. He's 100% man and 100% God in the same person. That's why Jesus Christ is, we speak of him as unique. There is no one else in all the universe like him. No one is 100% God and no one is 100% man at the same time. And so Jesus Christ is God. But we're also told in verse 23 that he's God with us. So not just God, but God with us, with people like us. God come down in the form of a human being, the creator coming into his creation as a human and being with us, living with us. Now, the early church uh, grasped this so well. Actually, the Council of Ephesus in AD 431 gave Mary the title of Theotokos, which is mother of God. Now, they weren't saying that uh, uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus' divinity. They're saying that uh, because Mary gave birth to Jesus and Jesus is God in the flesh, that Mary's the mother of God, a profound, amazing thought. And the early church understood this and gave us that language. And so even down to this day, we say, yeah, Mary gave birth uh, to the second person of the Trinity, as it were, in the flesh. Now, Jesus says, the Son of God has always existed from all eternity. He has no beginning. But there was a day when he came into this world through uh, Mary, and Mary gave birth uh, to him. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, this incarnation. And there's something so profound. Every time I, I meditate on Christmas, I can't Help, but I always turn to um, Thomas Watson actually wrote down a few marvelous things and so did Charles Spurgeon regarding how amazing this virgin birth is, how amazing it is that God would come into creation. And I wrote down a few of them. I think I've mentioned these to you before, but here they are just for your marvel and for your wonder. The God who made man in his own image made himself in man's image. A virgin conceived. The immortal clothed himself with mortality. The infinite became an infant. The supporter of the universe was carried in a mother's arms. The creator of the ends of the earth became a creature on the earth. 
the untiring God slept in a manger. The Ancient of Days, the eternally begotten Son of God, was born. He who thunders in the heavens cried in the cradle. He who rules the stars sucked at the breast. He who provides king their feasts was laid in a feeding trough. The one who made the woman became made of the woman, and the baby was older than the mother who bore him. Just tremendous, it's almost impossible to wrap our minds around this. How is it that Jesus Christ is fully God, and yet he's held by Mary, <laughs> and he's dependent on her, but he's sustaining her very life? This is the amazing thing about God coming in the flesh. Uh, I think Martin Luther said that's even maybe more of an amazement and more of a miracle than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection. How does God become man? How does he pull this off? And yet without sin, and we see that very thing happening. And I want us to, to consider just a few things uh, 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 before we move on to the next point. If God has come down to be with us, and he has, then that means that there's a way out of our condition. No human being needs to live in despair or hopelessness if God has really come down. God coming down to live with us means that God has come down to help us. It tells us he cares. It tells us he's come to fix our problem, that he's come to redeem us and save us and give us a way out of the predicament that every human being is in. And that's indeed the case. So no human being needs to despair. None of us needs to live next to other people who are in despair and say, I have nothing to offer you because we do have something to offer them. Look, God has come to live with us. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. You can have redemption. You can live in heaven forever. God has come to this earth to provide us a way out of our misery, a way out of this fallen world that is filled with chaos and corruption. God's come down here to give us a way out. And if you believe in his son, then you've got a way out. Then you're gonna be in heaven forever. You're gonna have eternal life. And you're saved now and all your sins are forgiven. So no human being needs to despair. If God has come to be with us, that means he cares. And something else I want to point out too is the language, if you look in verse 23, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means, or as is translated, God with us. Notice that phrase, just which means, or translated. Notice how much our Lord accommodates us. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word. <laughs> well, the New Testament here is written to Greek speakers, largely, the Greek speaking was in the world. That's what the Greeks spoke. And so the Holy Spirit is taking this word Emmanuel, which a lot of Greek speakers would have looked at and said, I don't know what that means, and tell us what it means, which means God with us. This is so glorious of God to accommodate us, beloved. Our God does not send a message to the world for the intellectually elite that says, if you can figure it out, you can be saved. Our God comes to us throughout the centuries in Hebrew, he comes in Greek later on because that's what they're speaking, to give us a message that the people can understand and we to this day can understand it. I remember uh, one pastor uh, saying he never liked to, uh, he, he actually enjoyed using uh, language that challenged people. So they'd have to go home and look up a dictionary and, and try and figure out what the language meant. And uh, I, I remember th having what a contrast that was to Martin Luther who said, I, I, I never preached to the doctors in my congregation, but I looked at the poor, I looked at the widows, and I looked at the orphan children and I wanted to make sure that they understood what I was saying. Beloved, God does not preach. He does not send his word to simply the high-minded intellectual people. You know who he sends the word to and makes sure they understand? To ordinary people like you and me. To people who might not have a huge grasp of the English language. And God comes to us and says, look, here's the good news. Here it is.
and it's tremendous. Uh, as we go out into this world and spread the gospel, isn't that so much of the work that we're doing? People ask, what does salvation mean? What is, what, who is Jesus? What does this mean that I'm sinful? What does eternal life mean? How can I get this? And we're constantly saying over and over, here's what it means. We're explaining it in a way that people can understand so that they too can be saved. Somebody took the time to explain it to us. God wrote his words that we could understand it, beloved. Christianity is not a message for the intellectually elite. It's a message for ordinary people so that we can repent and believe. Uh, So secondly, what did Jesus come to do? We see this in verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So this name Jesus uh, that is given to Jesus Christ means he who saves. And actually the language is from Yeshua or Joshua, uh, which means uh, he who saves as well. So Jesus, his very name means savior or the one who saves. And I'd like us to walk through in considering what did Jesus come to do? What is Jesus' primary purpose? Because when God assigns a name to somebody, it means something. It means something primary or of utmost importance about them. And God gave Jesus the name Jesus. So clearly this means something very important. I'd like you to imagine uh, being trapped under a, a collapsed roof in a burning house. And that's us in our original state by nature. We're stuck in a place that we can't get out of. And God's wrath, as it were, is pictured by the trap we're in and the inevitable uh, death that we're going to face eternally. And some people will view Jesus as not a savior to come in and rescue us from that horrible condition, to walk in the house and lift the house off of us and pull us out. But they view Jesus more as uh, something of a cheerleader. Uh, Someone who can pick our spirits up out of the doldrums, give us a good adrenaline rush, and uh, help us to feel really good about ourselves so that we can look at our situation with tons of adrenaline, just get out of the situation we're in, get out of our sin, and live a better life that God is pleased with. But the problem is, is that even the biggest adrenaline rush can't get a roof of a house, tens of thousands of pounds off of us. It can't help rescue us. We're in a position that adrenaline can't fix. Some people view Jesus as an effective teacher, uh, uh, merely as a teacher, only as a teacher. And they say, look, Jesus Christ came to us to deliver us from our ignorance. He came just to teach us. As if telling somebody who's trapped in a burning house where the roof has collapsed on them and they've got two by fours right through their legs, pinning them down, as if telling them, look, here's some instructions. Lift the 18,000 pound roof off of you, remove the two by fours out of your legs and army crawl out would help them, as if that would actually deliver them out of their horrible estate. Uh, We don't lack ignorance. The person inside the house doesn't lack uh, knowledge. They don't lack information. They're in a spot that they can't get themselves out of. Some people view Jesus as simply one who came to be our political king. They say, look, what we want from Jesus Christ and what we want from Christianity is to live in a place where everything's perfect, where the laws are perfect, everything's orderly, our politicians never abuse their power. And Jesus has come to do just that. He's come to establish a place where all of us as believers can live in a comfortable setting. It'll be like someone walking in uh, to the neighborhood of the person who's trapped in the burning house and say, hey, look, all the people who hate you, I've taken care of them. You're safe now. No, none of your neighbors who don't like you are going to come in and attack you. I'll protect you from all the outside influences here. That should help you save yourself. And the person inside would be saying, I'm stuck in here. (laughs) My problem isn't other people. My problem is me. I'm the one in the bad situation. I need rescuing. Right now, I'm my own worst enemy. I need help out of here. And some people view Jesus 
as simply a mere moral example. Say, look, Jesus came into this world to show us how we're supposed to live. As if Jesus had walked up to the sidewalk of the person trapped in the burning building and said this, hey, I'm going to show you how to get up. You just mimic what I do. And so he lays on the ground and he pushes himself up and stands up. And the person inside would say, but I can't. I can't stand up. I can't get out of here. I am stuck and I am trapped. But what the name of Jesus tells us is that Jesus has come as a savior. Now there's an element of truth to each of the things we looked at, right? Jesus as cheerleader, Christ encourages his people. We are encouraged as God's people, or we should be. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's true that Jesus is a teacher. He has come to teach us. He saw sheep without shepherds. He saw people living in ignorance. Our Lord is indeed a teacher. Our Lord is also a king, but not of an earth, not in an earthly sense. He's a king of another country, and he'll bring that country to the earth when he comes again. And Jesus is also an example that we're called to follow. Peter makes that very clear in 1 Peter 2. Jesus is our example we're called to follow. But the primary work that Jesus was sent to do was to be our Savior, and his name bears that. Look, Joseph, what's in Mary right now is a child, and I want you to uh, remember something. You'll name that child Jesus, and here's why. Because that child in Mary that the Holy Spirit conceived has come to save his people from their sins. His name is going to tell you all about him. His name is going to communicate to everyone who knows or hears about him what he's come to do. Save his people from their sins. How do you save someone from their sins? In order to save someone from a desperate condition, you have to enter into their condition. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, beloved. Matthew 26, 45, See the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Jesus Christ came into this world and was betrayed right into the hands of people who have our very condition. If Christ is going to come save us, he has to enter into our condition. Look, there's no way for a paramedic to save someone from death unless that paramedic is present with the person. You have to be there giving them CPR. You have to be there administering that shock thing. I can't even remember what it's called anymore. That defibrillator, there we go. You have to be present in order to save uh, somebody. There's no way for a fireman to rescue someone over the phone. If someone's trapped in a car and they can't get out, as a fireman, you've got to be there present. You have to be there in their life assisting them. There's no way for a military unit to rescue an American hostage by sitting behind their computer. If there's an American taken hostage, the military has to go over there. You have to go and face the hostage takers and take them out and put yourself in the place of the hostage alongside of them to take them out. Beloved, there's no way for you and I to be saved unless God comes down. There's no way that you and I could possibly get out of the horrible condition that we were conceived in. There's no way for it to happen. It's impossible unless God becomes you and me without sin. Unless God shows up. Unless God the Son is born into this world. And that's exactly what took place. If God's going to pull off this greatest of all things, this salvation of dreadful sinners like you and me, if God's going to pull this off, He's got to send His Son to come into this world and then live perfectly so that we can get out of this world. He's got to die in our place and be resurrected so that we don't have to die for our sins and perish eternally. He takes our punishment. That's how we can get out of this. 
Now, for whom did Jesus come to do this? We're told in the passage, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, what is so interesting about this language that Matthew uses, he will save his people, is a lot of people might have thought, oh, he's come to save the Israelites. <laughs> oh, sure. Matthew says this right from the beginning. He's come to save his people, the Israelites, from their sins. And then as you read the Gospel of Matthew, what Matthew makes really clear is that actually a lot of the Jewish people, and especially the leaders, maybe aren't the people that Jesus has come to save. And in fact, as you read Matthew, come to find out that it's the prostitutes that are entering the kingdom of God ahead of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the, the church leaders. And it's, it's thieves like Nicodemus. And it's really wicked people that society frowns upon who are in a lot of sin. Those are the people that Jesus has come to save. In fact, if you're righteous, Jesus says, look, I've not come to call the righteous. I've not come to save righteous people. I've come to save sinners. And so who are the people that Jesus has come for, beloved? Sinners like you and me. And Spurgeon commented on this language of his people. We are eager to know who they are, and we are glad to find out that his people, uh, be they who they may, uh, need to be saved and shall be saved, for it is written, he shall save his people. It is not said he shall reward his people for their righteousness, nor is it promised that he shall save them from becoming sinners, but he shall save his people from their sins. Do you need saving, brothers? Has the Holy Spirit taught you that you need salvation? Let your hearts be encouraged. This is the character of all God's people. He never had a chosen one who could do without washing in the Savior's blood. If you are righteous in yourself, you are not one of Jesus' people. If you were never sick in soul, you are none of the folk that the great physician has come to heal. If you were never guilty of sin, you are none of those whom he has come to deliver from sin. Jesus comes on no needless errand and undertakes no unnecessary work. If you feel yourselves to need saving, then cast yourselves upon him. For such as you are, he came to save. So let me ask you, I ask myself this. Do you believe that you're a sinner needing salvation? Do you feel it? Do you get it? Do we understand it? Because those are God's people. Those who are convinced I can't save myself. I can't get myself out of this mess. I need a hero. I need someone better, bigger, stronger in every way than me. I need someone who's God. Because I'm not just looking at myself, but I'm looking around at the entire world. And I see I'm a sinner and everybody else is broken too. So nobody else here that's born like I was born can fix my problem. I need someone else. And God says, here's the someone else. It's my son, Jesus Christ. He's come to deliver. Now, how can we receive this? What does it look like to believe in Jesus and, and have our sins forgiven? I want us to notice just two things out of the passage. Uh, the first one is uh, embracing the uncomfortableness of, of believing in Jesus. So if you look at verse 24, Joseph, we're, we're told he took his wife. He took his wife. Now, according to Deuteronomy 24, Joseph could legally divorce Mary. Here's Deuteronomy 24.1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he, uh, she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found some he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So what that's telling us is that there was a time if, if, a, if two people were engaged and all of a sudden he noticed something indecent about her. Uh, she got pregnant. He could write her a certificate of divorce because in that day, engagement was about the equivalent of the official wedding. He just hasn't consummated it yet. 
He could write her a certificate and that relationship could be ended. And in fact, in Joseph's time, this had become so much part of Jewish life that divorce in this case, where your wife comes up pregnant, uh, wasn't just an option, it was almost required. The entire expectation of the people around Joseph would have been, well, of course you're gonna divorce Mary. <laughs> no doubt about it. Like this isn't, well, Joseph, you've got a couple options here. You can, you can live with her and you can make this work and you can work through all the details of this, or you, know, you can divorce her. Now the expectation is, well, of course he is. There's no really other recourse. There's no other option for Joseph. That would have been their understanding. And verse 20 is actually uh, written in your Bible, but as he considered these things, a better translation is actually when he had resolved to do this. So Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant. He thought about it, and then he came up with a resolution. I'm, I'm resolved to divorce her. I'm going to put her away. But he's a noble man. He's a respectable man. He's a genuine believer in the Lord. And so he does this in a kind way. Look at verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. was not going to make a public spectacle of this. Wasn't going to say, hey, hey, look at Mary, look at what she's done, I'm out of here. He was going to, I don't want to shame her. I'm going to do this quietly. I'm going to get a couple witnesses. We're going to handle this, and this is going to be over. So he wasn't mean and vindictive, quite the contrary. He was loving. And the reason that he was going to do this is because an angel appeared in a dream and said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now, you can imagine what this must have been like for Joseph when he woke up in the morning. What in the world? <laughs> I was resolved to do this. The angel appears and says, look, take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel's saying this. You're Joseph, you're waking up in the morning. So how do I explain this one to my friends? <laughs> how do I tell this one to my buddies and to all the townsfolk who are gonna be asking, how does this work? But it, must, it was the Lord speaking. It was the angel Lord coming as a messenger and Joseph believed it. He, he latched onto it, he grasped it and he took it as the gospel truth. And so he took Mary as his wife. And I wanna ask you, I ask myself this as well, have you embraced the uncomfortableness of what it is to be a Christian? Joseph could have said, I am out of here. I am done with this. I'm not taking Mary. The passage says he took her. What if he said, I'm not taking her? This Jesus come to save us from our sins? I'm not, uh -uh, I'm not buying that. But Joseph embraced the uncomfortableness. You know, what would it be like to walk into a room and feeling like you have to explain to everybody that actually Mary's pregnant because the Holy Spirit showed up and they're all thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> Joseph, this has happened uh, by now uh, millions of times. <laughs> You're telling us that, that the Holy Spirit? No, we know what took place, Joseph. Just own it and just get over it, right? Imagine all the awkwardness, the uncomfortableness. That's why Joseph wanted to put her away. Instead of doing that, leaving Mary in this uncomfortable situation all by herself, he said, I'll welcome this uncomfortableness into my life. Well, that's what it is to be a Christian, is to embrace something that before the world is going to make you very uncomfortable, that your hope is in a baby born in a manger. And, and the Bible says, God says, this is also God. Yeah, right. You're telling me that the God who made me and sustains me is living in a cradle? You're telling me that the God who made me and sustains me came down a birth canal? You're telling me that the God who made me and sustains me and before whom I'm going to be judged died on a cross in weakness, in suffering? Why would God come here to suffer? 
Why would he come here to be treated like a, like a, like a, like a dog? Not, not like we treat our pets today, <laughs> like, a, like a dog, like, like a horrible animal. Why would he come down here to be treated like that? Oh, well, that's what her hope is in. The Savior, Jesus, come down here. It's going to make you and I really uncomfortable when we go out into the world and we spread this news. When we say, you know what, I'm here to serve King Jesus. Well, where's your king? He's in heaven. He's coming. Yeah, right. It's going to make you and I really uncomfortable. Have you embraced that? Are we those Christians who are going around just trying to make our lives the most comfortable as possible, concerned that everybody else treats us like royalty while we yet have life, unwilling to bear the cross before the crown comes? Because, beloved, Jesus says, look, if, you, if you're mine, you're going to go through tribulation. You're going, to go through, you're going to go through difficulty and persecution. It's going to be hard. Are we those who are hiding our light? It's really easy to hide our light, too, then life becomes way more comfortable. But if we're faithful to the Lord and we're living for his glory and we're telling others about Jesus, beloved, you're going to get a lot of uncomfortable situations. Have you embraced it like Joseph embraced it? Something else I want us to just consider, that is, have we received this Christ as our Savior is, have we established an official personal relationship with Jesus? Look at verse 25. We're told he called his name Jesus. So Joseph took Mary as his wife, didn't know her until after she had given birth, officially established a relationship with Jesus. He's Jesus' earthly father. He's given Jesus the name. That's what the parents did. Joseph is saying, I'm all in. And he made this public and he made this personal. He made this official. Joseph isn't on the outside here. He's not saying, well, I know of Mary. Uh, I know of this Jesus. He's saying, nope, I'm right in. I'm going to be involved. I'm part of this process, and, and I'm in. That's what it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive him, beloved. Christianity knows nothing of people saying, yeah, I know of Jesus, but well, have you, have you come out and acknowledged it? professed your faith before other people, said, I'm a Christian, been baptized. Has any of this taken place? Christianity there was nothing of people saying, hey, look, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to hide it. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to avoid God and his people and, and worshiping God and praising him and serving others. I'm going to avoid all this uncomfortable stuff. Beloved, when we believe, it's an embracing of this life, saying, Lord, you've done all this for me. You, you've given me eternal life. What's 50 years of following you? What's 60 maybe difficult years of people not thinking I'm cool or hip, but, and I'm, I'm on fire for Jesus. I love Jesus more than I love anyone else. What's, what's 50 years of that? When you've given me eternal life. Yeah, Lord, I'm in. I want to tell everybody that I know you. I want to tell everybody that I love you because you first loved me. I want the world to know at the cost of my life, I'll lay down my neck before I deny you. Oh, but that's Joseph all in. Gave Jesus that name, called him Jesus, took Mary to be his wife. He's all in on this. Let me conclude uh, with this. For any who don't know Jesus might not know Jesus. Uh, to know Jesus Christ is to begin with admitting, look, I'm sinful and I need him. It's that simple. I offend people, not because they're easily offended, but because I'm offensive, because I'm broken. I don't talk like I should. I don't think like I should. I don't do the things I should. And the worst is that before God, I am not glorifying him like he made me to do. I don't mind ignoring him. I don't mind living like he's not around. The first thing on the trip is to admit I, I am broken. 
And so I need a savior out of this because if I'm broken, then I'm subject to, to eternal wrath for my sins. And when I die, that's exactly where I'm going is hell unless I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he pays for my sins. Then he goes to hell for me. Then he's on the cross forsaken paying for my debt. So if someone doesn't know Jesus Christ, all you have to do is fall down before him and say, forgive me. I, I believe in you and your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life. And for those of us who are believers, you know, sometimes it can be hard to find uh, joy in the Christian life. Uh, the Christian life has lots of trials, lots of difficulties. And uh, one, one person wrote this, you cannot make a man unconvinced of his sin rejoice in a savior who came to die for sin. Right? The way up is down. It's so counterintuitive, beloved, but maybe part of the reason we might not be joyful if we're not right now, as we meditate on the incarnation of our Lord, is that we've forgotten how sinful we are. We've forgotten what we were delivered from. We've forgotten that, yeah, in the midst of all this chaos, changing diapers, going to work, trying to make it through the day, living in, living in pain, trying to pay the bills, fixing cars, whatever, doing all the daily stuff that we got to do, keeping up neighbor relations, in the midst of all that, we forgot, look, I, I was a broken, wretched sinner. I was heading to hell, and God intervened in my life with Jesus Christ and gave me the Savior. <laughs> wow. Okay, Lord, I'll fix the tire. Lord, I'll make the meal. I'll change the diaper now. You, you did this. That's where I was. That's what I deserved. That's where I was heading. And you, you did a 180 here, and you gave me this great gift. Now, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to serve you, and I'm ready to love you. So, if we find ourselves just downcast, maybe downtrodden, unable to find joy, it could be because we've just forgot how sinful we are and especially how sinful we were before we came to Christ and how much condemnation stood over our heads. So rejoice, beloved. Find joy in this. God thought it not beneath him to come and die for you and me in the, in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're, we're the only people really in the world who can have joy. Let's pray.